Welcome to Season 3 of the Unscripted Medicine Podcast, a podcast by medical students who live and learn at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We would love to hear from you. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Unscripted Podcast, everyone. This is Mason, joined today by Dr. Matthew Kelleher. Dr. Kelleher is an internal medicine pediatric hospitalist at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Medical Center and at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Uh, He received his medical degree from the University of Louisville. School of Medicine in 2010, and he completed his internal medicine and pediatric training at the University of Cincinnati in 2014, where he also completed a chief year and earned a master's of medical education in 2017. Uh, in addition to his roles as a hospitalist, he also serves as an associate program director for the internal medicine residency program at the University of Cincinnati. He's one of the clinical skills course directors for first and second year medical students at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He's joining us here today to talk about what uh, life as a clinical educator can can look like. Dr. Kelleher, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was a long introduction, so thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you on today. I've wanted to actually get your voice in the podcast for a while. So for everyone who's not from the UC College of Medicine, Dr. Kelleher plays a pretty essential role in uh, every medical student's development. Like I said, he leads the clinical skills workshops, which is all about uh, standardized patient encounters and really exposing medical students to that the early clinical skills decision making that is so key in all of medicine. That's right. I run and I run that course with Dr. Weber. Just want to make That's sure right. we give her a shout out. So all the good habits you learn are probably from her. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Dr. Kelleher, did I miss anything about you that you'd like to add before we go on from here? No, I don't think so. I mean, I can tell you more about myself, but that that that's all the titles and all that stuff. Great. So I think the the first question that the audience might ask that we should answer. So there are a lot of terms and titles that we hear about in the world of medical education. There's a clinical teacher, clinical educator, there's clerkship directors, program directors. Could we just take a moment just to define these a little bit? Yeah, I think that is a fantastic way to start. Um, And maybe I'll come back and tell you more about my own story and how I got into medical education. But I do think that is a perfect way to start because in medical education, it's good to start with definitions. I think that's probably the case with a lot of different disciplines. But there is a podcast that I I love to listen to called the Key Lime Podcast, Key Literature and Medical Education. It is a phenomenal podcast you know, resource. And actually, one of the things I'll tell you later today, that that is a good place to start if you think you want to be an educator, start listening to that podcast. But there's three clinicians on that podcast. And then there's kind of a, a health professions educational researcher. And they talk all the time about how medical education suffers from not having what they call a lingua franca, meaning like there there is no common language that we all use in medical education. And because of that, sometimes it gets confusing. So, you know, you can feel this as a student. You might say, I'm interested in education, right? But what in the heck does that even mean? Like, what does it mean to be interested in education, to be interested in becoming a a clinical educator or a clinician educator? 
So I'll start with some definitions. And these come from a paper in 2014. And I can't remember the title of it now, but I remember reading the paper because I had to give a talk about this careers in medical education. And in the paper, they go through all of these things and talk about what does it actually mean to be a clinician educator? They ask like multiple different people in kind of a focus group or a, a structured interview format. And basically what they come up with is a spectrum. Okay, so follow me here. If you think of like a line, on one of the far ends, you have a clinical teacher. That's what they would call it. On the other end, you have kind of an educationalist. Okay. And then in the middle, you have what's called a clinician educator. Now, the two ends are kind of probably pretty obvious, right? A clinical teacher is someone who works in a hospital, in a clinic, in an operating room, in an ER, and they are teaching students and learners continually while seeing patients. The other end, an educationalist, you know, they, they are a little more nebulous, but usually it's around research or administration or leadership roles, and they really don't have much of a role in seeing patients. So sometimes they're, they're not even necessarily MDs or trained in a, a traditional medical, you know, MD or DO, traditional medical paradigm. Uh, they could be PhDs, uh, masters, et cetera, et cetera. In the middle is what's called a clinician educator in this paper is what it was defined as. And a clinician educator, they said, has three different specific things. And this is important because as you think about, if you want to be a clinician educator, these are the three things they said, uh, or all these different people said, I should say, when they interviewed them, they said, this is what makes up a clinician educator. Number one, you got to be active in clinical practice. That makes sense, right? It's kind of interesting if you think about it, because like, if you think about like some of the other disciplines and graduate degrees in the world, like law, for instance, most people that teach law don't practice law anymore, right? But like in medicine, a lot of people that actually teach you to become a physician are still actually practicing medicine. That's how they teach you is your, they mm -hmm. teach you through the workplace or through doing things. So that's number one, you got to be active in clinical practice. Number two is you apply educational theory to practice or you apply educational theory to your teaching. And I combine this one with another one as you also help others or consult with others to do this. And this is a bit nebulous, but let me try to explain. So, so for instance, myself and a couple other people who are really interested in this kind of stuff, we get asked all the time, hey, can you check out my Grand Rounds lecture and give me some feedback? Uh, in fact, we used to do this for Ben Kinnear and myself used to do this for the hospital medicine division at Children's. We would read, they would send us every single PowerPoint presentation before we would have our kind of educational conference. And they would just ask us to flip through the slides and give them feedback about whether or not they're following like principles of education. There's another example. There's a guy who gives one of the Super Tuesday lectures here at Cincinnati. He, you know, emailed me a year back and said, hey, can you just sit down and walk me through how I can make this lecture better or how can I improve this lecture? So it's like applying the theory of education to your actual practice. And I could give you more and more examples. Let me give a few more just to try to make it less like theoretical. Sure. Like, there's a theory in, in psychology called the self-determination theory, which basically says all of motivation for anybody comes from three different things, mastery, autonomy, and a sense of purpose. Mm. When you understand that theory, it's easy to see how that applies to education, right? The more autonomy I can give someone, the more I can lean and push on that sense of purpose, the more I can make them intrinsically or, or push on that intrinsic motivator for them to care about care about what they're doing, right? And patient care and things like that. Uh, or there's another theory out there about what makes a learner entrustable. Uh, and there's this mnemonic, which I know med students love mnemonics. So you'll like this. It's called A-RICH. Uh, agency, reliability, integrity, 
capability, and humility. I think through this every single time I give a learner feedback or every single time I go to fill out one of your assessments, I'm thinking, what was their agency like? How proactive were they, right? Like how reliable were they? Did they follow up on the things they said they were going to follow up? What about their integrity? Were they patient-centered in every aspect of what they did? You know, humility, do they know their own limitations? That is what I mean by when you apply theory to education. That that. is number two. So active in clinical practice, apply educational theory to your practice. And the third thing is engaged in educational scholarship. Now, scholarship is kind of, I think most of us see publications instantly, but I think in this paper, they do a good job of laying out. It doesn't have to be just publication. There are other things like giving a workshop, giving seminars or posters, you name it. Like scholarship doesn't have to be confined to just publications. But I think if you're going to call yourself a clinician educator, you're going to be involved in some element of educational scholarship, meaning you're advancing the knowledge around education beyond just what you do in your small little sphere. You're actually trying to transfer that knowledge to a larger audience, to a larger group, to other disciplines. So that that's it. Active in clinical practice. Use theory to engage in education uh, and then engage in educational scholarship. And I think when you see it that way, now hopefully you can see a little bit how that's different than just a clinical teacher. There are a lot of people, some of the best teachers I know, uh, that I wouldn't call clinician educators. They work in a hospital, they work full time, and they teach you, right? They teach students, they teach residents, but they're not necessarily reading the literature on medical education and trying to understand how to apply theory to it and trying to engage in scholarship. They're certainly teachers, but they're not necessarily what we would call a clinician educator. So that that's kind of a, a framework I'll give you. That's excellent. I, I love that definition too. I think that really encompasses the the scope of what a clinician educator is. I think a follow-up question I have for that, you, you kind of alluded to this with the teacher in the hospital on the war, on wards or on a consult service and how that's a little different from what a clinician educator is. Not that they can't be a clinician educator, but it's there's a little bit more of a role involved with it. Are clinician educators only found within the realm of academic medicine or can you find clinician educators practicing in the community? Is it specific to any specialty or scope of practice? It's a great question. I do not think it is specific to any specialty for sure. You'll find clinician educators that are ENTs, clinician educators that are ED docs, internal medicine, peds, you name it. And I could tell you tons of examples, right? And as an internist and a pediatrician, most of those would probably come from internal medicine and pediatrics, but there are many, many others throughout, you know, the both institutions that I work with. Do you have to be in an academic setting? I think is a tricky question. The answer to that is probably no. Uh, And I'll give you one example. There's a pediatrician here in town, uh, two pediatricians in town, one of which is works with my wife, Nicole Baldwin, who probably people know. She's incredibly involved in kind of like uh, social media, which you could see as a form of scholarship, right? So I don't know how these people would define themselves. And I don't know that it's even necessary that they do, but she works in a private practice right? Uh, Another guy named Chris Peltier, he works in a private practice setting clinically, but they are still affiliated with Cincinnati Children's and the academic system, right? So they still have learners coming from Children's, but they they are certainly involved and engaged in scholarship. I don't know much about their practice, whether or not they're applying educational theory to practice. My guess is they are. So the answer is, I don't know for sure, but my guess is the answer would be yes. You do not have to be in an academic, working in an academic setting. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for giving those specific examples. 
I've heard Nicole, I've heard of Nicole Baldwin before, and uh, I didn't realize that she was uh, working in private practice. So I think that's 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 really helpful and useful to know. Going on from there, Dr. Kelleher. So we're talking about all these definitions of what a clinician educator is, and I I talked a little bit about all the things that you're well, some of the things that you're involved with, but. I guess in your own words, what is your role in medical education? Hmm, my role. You kind of introduced me uh, to some extent, I guess, already. I'm a clinician educator is the way I would describe myself. And I think I would say my interests have changed drastically over the you know seven or eight years since I've been done with residency. Currently, if you were to ask me what are my main interests, right? Like what is my role? I would say the things that really you know, they get me up in the work in the morning, the things that make me excited to go to work are teaching clinical reasoning. Number two, trying to learn point of care ultrasound. And then number three, probably the greatest interest is around the concept of assessment and how assessment drives learning. And even more importantly, like how students, how residents, how they grow. So how does that play out in my life? Well, it plays out in my life in many different ways, right? Like I run the clinical skills course at the medical school where we teach the history and physical exam to very junior learners in their first two years of medical school, right? And that's fun because I get to teach a lot of clinical reasoning skills in those first two years. I get to teach them what it means to make a problem representation and create a differential diagnosis and how to reason through edema, how the physical exam drives your clinical reasoning and drives your thinking. So that that stuff is exciting for me, clinical reasoning. It also plays out in the clinical realm, right? Whenever I teach on the wards at Children's or at university, I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to constantly push on that interest of mine, which is how you think, your clinical reasoning skills. Point of care ultrasound is kind of more of a personal interest and something that I've been trying to teach myself so that hopefully maybe one day I could teach others. Uh, and then the assessment piece really plays out in a lot of the academic roles that I have. Some of my time is spent just doing educational research and scholarship. Um, And in that role, what I'm really fascinated in is is assessment, which I know probably sounds like the dorkiest and the nerdiest thing in the world, right? Like who would ever say that they're interested in assessment? But this came to me when I was a, I was a chief resident for MedPeds, internal medicine and pediatrics in 2014 and 2015. And I can tell you more of my story if you want to know it. But like when I became a chief, I was thinking to myself, "Do, do I like academic medicine? I'm not sure. I think I do but I probably should find out the answer to this. So I cho- I, I accepted a chief position. During that year, I worked really closely with Eric Warm, which if anyone knows him, he is the most amazing educator, in my opinion, in the world. He's a program director for the internal medicine residency. And what Eric did is Eric created a, a program of assessment at the UC internal medicine residency that is all based around workplace-based assessments, meaning they're really small skills that we can see our residents do in the clinical environment. And we actually assess them on a five-point entrustment scale. And then we put all of those data points together. They're mapped back to these big competency domains called milestones. And we can create curves to actually say how our learners are progressing. And I remember when I was a chief uh, was my first introduction to kind of behind the curtain, if you will, like to seeing like, wow, like this is what's happening, like on the academic side, we're, we're collecting all this data to try to actually help our residents see where they are, see where there are opportunities for improvement, see how they can grow, you know, different interventions or different coaching strategies or different ways to try to help them reach their fullest potential. I mean, we're talking thousands of data points. It like absolutely 
blew my mind. It was like one of these moments that I was like, this is what I want to do. And I think that was the moment when I was kind of like, I knew I liked teaching, like teaching students and residents. That was the moment where I was like, I think I really like the educational scholarship and theory part of this as well. Interesting. And that, that was the, like, like we were talking about earlier, that's one of the key elements to clinical being a clinical educator, right? That's right. Having interest in the the scholarship end of it. So was it during your chief year that you first became really interested in clinical education or I guess, how did that interest develop for you over time? Oh man, that's a good question. No, I don't think so. I mean, so I was raised in a small town in Kentucky and my mom and dad weren't in medicine at all. They taught me a lot about hard work, but they they didn't go, like I had nobody to guide me when it came to medicine. I worked really hard all my life through college. And when I went to college, I joined a campus ministry and I did a lot of teaching in that campus ministry. And I kind of found that I was, I don't know, like enjoyed it, I guess is the right way to say Like I, I like looked forward to it. Whereas others might say like, oh man, I have to give a talk on something that kind of makes you nervous. And like, I found like a lot of like fulfillment, I guess, or just a lot of like excitement around it. It was like exciting to look things up and to think about teaching it. And then when I went to residency, well, let me back up. When I went to med school, let me tell you one more story, actually. When I went to med school, I had this like total stroke of luck. Okay. So my anatomy partner turns out to be the number one student in our entire uh, med school after four years. But I didn't know that at the time, obviously, but he's my anatomy Uh partner. He's a non-traditional student. So he's already created or completed like a master's degree, I think in agriculture or something like that. And we meet the first, the first month of medical school. And, you know, you go through, everybody does this, right? Like the first test comes out and everybody's like, oh man, okay. I don't know as much as I thought I did, or, you know, (laughs) anymore. Like this is not college anymore, man. This is going to be different. Well, he like crushed the first test. And so I remember asking him like, how did you do that? Like, how, how did you study? And what he did is he created a flat, he took every single lecture and he would create a flashcard from every single nugget of knowledge. And I know you all are thinking that doesn't seem that novel, but in 2006, when I was in med school, that was quite novel to me. I'm like, you mean you make a flashcard for every single like point made in a lecture? And then he would just memorize those flashcards. And I was like, wow, that is incredible. So I took Mm. that, that idea onto myself and we started doing that, or I started doing that myself. It turns out actually in second year of med school, it got so overwhelming to try to keep up that we actually started creating flashcards on PowerPoint slides back then. We created our own Anki, Anki or Anki or whatever you call yeah. it. Yes. Before, before that existed, we basically created wow. that and we would share it with the entire class. And yeah. so like every, everybody absolutely loved it, but we would create our own kind of flashcard decks from every lecture. So that, that was like one of these moments that I was like, this is really fun. Like learning is really, really fun. So then I go to residency and what I noticed pretty quickly is I love taking care of patients, but it is like so much more fun when you can do it with a learner. I found it was like the most rewarding thing in the world to like go see an altered patient with a medical student and talk about like your thinking behind it, right? Or how you're going to examine them. And you'll, if you know me, you know my style. I just, I just talk out loud, literally. There's no like, uh, I'm not like, here's a chalk talk. It's more of just like, you know, we have fun just thinking out loud together. 
And I found that like, it was just an absolute blast. I mean, I remember my very first month of my intern year, these two AIs that we had the best month ever, like just learning together. And it wasn't what I expected at all. I mean, you know, in med school, I, I was pretty sure I was going to be a rural doctor. And I remember when I got to residency, you know, we were seeing HIV and cryptococcal meningitis and syphilis and, you mm-hmm. know, these liver failure, these really complicated patients. And I mean, I loved it. And I still remember multiple learners. I mean, one of the surgical ICU attendings, he was one of my you know, third year med students when I was an intern. And uh, there's an ENT here. He was my AI when my first wow. month senioring and like, I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved teaching and and learning. So that that was like, okay, I switched from thinking I wanted to do rural or private practice. I need to stay in an academic setting around learners. Uh, And then I did that chief year for that reason. And that's when I really realized like, okay, I like this is more than just teaching. Like I like all of it. I like the design. I like the thinking through it. It's funny. This comes full circle for me in 2012. Uh, Eric Warm, he created something at the University of Cincinnati's internal medicine program called the Master Teacher Program, which I know sounds kind of presumptuous. We, we've since changed that to the master, you know, to the medical education pathway. But back then we <laughs> called it the Master Teacher Program. And what we would do is it was, I think it was 2012, maybe 2013. We would just sit in a room, whoever wanted to come, and we would just talk about medical education theory, like how to teach, how to motivate learners, how to give good feedback, how to assess learners, these kinds of things. And I remember we had this one person come from Xavier. He, he was a professor there, PhD, Mark Myers. And that was the first time he gave us a, a, a talk on this concept of learning. And he said, there are three main things back then that cause learning to stick or cause people to retain knowledge. It was retrieval practice, spacing, and interleaving. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head, like, oh my gosh, like this is why the flashcards in med school worked, right? This is why doing you world questions was so much more effective than sitting down and trying to read a textbook. And I'll tell you, we took that simple concept when he taught us that, the the medical and the master teacher program, this retrieval practice, spacing and interleaving as concepts for learning, concepts for, for retaining knowledge. When he taught us that, we started changing the way our internal medicine residency was designed right there in that moment. Literally, we created a testing program. We changed our curriculum, the way we ordered things to try to make sure we were spacing knowledge, right? Or distributing practice, like to where you saw one topic in July and we would return to that topic in October. We would mix topics. So instead of doing all of cardiology in July, now we did one cardiology, one GI, one nephrology, and one, you know, ID topic. And then we would do it in August. We would switch it around. Like that is what I mean. Again, back to the, we started taking educational theory and saying, we're going to guide our curriculum around these principles. That is where really the interest comes from, I guess, is all of these different moments, you know, I found myself being interested in the content, but also just interested in how it's delivered the process, Mm -hmm. right? When someone would lead a noon report, I was not just interested in the content. It was like fascinating to me to think about how they ask questions, how to get us to, to answer questions. What, what was their style? How did they like lead us down the path in the way they ask questions or how did they, they put the knowledge together? The more you think about the process and the why and and how you do things, the more you're getting into that whole concept of educational theory, guiding your teaching or guiding your practice. And I think that's when you know you're an educator, you know, like you're not just going to work in an academic setting. Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I shouldn't say the word just, 
but you're not going to be happy enough just teaching. You're going to want to also teach and understand the educational theory behind it all. That's so fascinating. I've had a similar kind of epiphanous moment in my own medical education. It was after my third year. Uh, I'd just taken step two and I had a few weeks off and I finally got around to reading a book that's been recommended to me many, many times before that uh, called Make It Stick, which we've referenced on this podcast before. And here I am reading this book and they're talking about a lot of these principles that you mentioned, like mixed practice, inter, inter, interleaving and many other things. And I just thought, wow, these are the things that worked for me the best when I was learning all this stuff before. And I had never really focused on that, really thought about the things that are effective for that. So my, my own my own kind of doorway into medical education kind of opened up right there. I love yeah. it. I think uh, it's a great, I mean, education is not about how you teach, it's about how you learn, right? And I think that's why a book like Make It Stick is so powerful because you spend so much time as a learner uh, and finally you get to see like, wow, this is what it goes into it, the neuroscience behind it. I'll give you another example from that uh, same thing. Like, did you know that there's this, this concept of prime time in lectures? Have you ever heard this before? There is this, this theory essentially that people retain more from the first 15 minutes of a lecture than they do from any other parts of the lecture. So there's a prime time, then there's a downtime, and then apparently learners' attention and focus comes back towards the end where they begin to retain more. Interesting. It's so funny to me because I watch people give lectures all the time where the first 10 minutes is like, you know, they introduce themselves, they show pictures of some kittens, and then they go through the epidemiology of something, right? And then you're yep. 20 minutes into the lecture. And now here comes the meat of when you're actually going to talk about what someone is supposed to really retain from wow. it. And by then my attention is shot, right? Like I'm already in downtime at that yeah. point. Understanding the theory makes education fun. And it, it's when you know that you love education, when you actually get excited about that stuff. So Dr. Kelleher, it's, it's clear to me that you love your job and you love the things that you're doing and uh, your interest in medical education kind of got you to where you're at right now or in the first place. But what does that actually look like in terms of balancing your role as a medical educator with your role as a clinician also? Good question. I guess maybe let me try to answer it. So everything in the academic world is based off what a full-time equivalent is, meaning like full-time clinical work. So just seeing patients. If you think about that for like a hospitalist, it's like working about 200 shifts a year or something like that. So for me specifically, about 50% of my time is spent seeing patients. And that is like spent half and half between seeing kids, children's, uh, and seeing adults at the University of Cincinnati Hospital. And then there's different service lines in that. But 50% is clinical work. I'll put it that way. Then about 25%, 20 to 25% of my time is spent running a course at the medical school, right? Clinical skills. And that's mm -hmm. all that it entails. Grading, designing simulation scenarios, answering emails, meeting with students, uh, training SPs, actually face-to-face -face teaching, answering emails. I'll say that one again, <laughs> since there are often a lot of them. <laughs> um, so so that, that's about 25% of my time. And then the other 25% is split, you know, about 10 to 15% for kind of just administration. Believe it or not, there's just tons of stuff that has to happen you know, behind the scenes from an administration perspective. And then 10 to 15% spent doing kind of educational scholarship stuff. So specifically, research, if that makes sense, research, workshops, reading papers, trying to design, you know, whatever study or innovation or leadership thing that I may be involved in in that moment. So that, that's pretty much how my time is, is split, if that makes sense. And I love it that way. I'll tell you, 
There are so many moments when I am so happy to see patients because it can get uh, monotonous to be reading papers and writing and answering emails. And I'll get to go to the clinical realm and I'll be like, it's so exciting to see patients, Mm. right? And then there are moments when you're seeing patients and you're like, man, this is messy and this is hard and the pager keeps going off. And I'm so happy to return to the office where I can have moments to sit and read and reflect and design educational seminar or like educational things. And it's like this yin and yang where you're constantly like, I'm ready to go back and see patients. I'm in, ready to go back to the office and focus on education, focus on teaching and learners. Um, the, the constant kind of back and forth is really probably what makes the job so much fun. That's really cool. Thank you for those reflections. I, I appreciate that. So you've, you've, we've talked about this a couple of times so far along the lines of medical education research and scholarship, but I think an important question that I want to ask you for the listeners of this episode are any tips or advice that you might offer to medical students who are interested in medical education. Things that come to mind for me are tutoring or leading dissection workshops, but what outside of those basic things can students do? Good question. Um, you told me this was coming and I still feel like this is a hard one to answer. I tried to write it down into five different tips. The first one I'll give you is to say yes to everything you can. (laughs) I think, uh, in medical education. So there's this really fascinating paper that's been published on where they, they went and asked about 40 different medical educators or clinician educators, how they got where they are. And the dominant finding from it was that it's serendipity. Literally, that's the title of the paper. It's serendipity. It's not like becoming a nephrologist where you say like, well, I got to do nephrology research and I got to meet some nephrologists and I got to apply for fellowship and then I'm going to become a nephrologist. Becoming a medical educator or a clinician educator, there's just no like clear one route to get there. Mm -hmm. So the first tip is just say yes to every opportunity you get. So don't be afraid to start broad. Like if you get involved in a project and maybe the content is not like the thing that you love, the thing that makes you like super excited, it's okay. Like get involved, say yes, do the best you can, work as hard as you can and learn, 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 right? Like this is kind of how you new doors get opened. You just say yes. I'll give you one anecdote to to answer that. A couple of years ago, Ben Kinnear, who's a good friend and a clinician educator I probably admire most, uh, we were at a conference in Canada and we were getting ready to catch a plane to leave the conference. It was the last day. And we went to the the big like place where you get food. And this was before the pandemic. And we sat down to get food before we caught our plane or before we caught the taxi to get to the airport. And we sit down and there's this older gentleman at the table next to us and we start asking him questions. And it turns out he is the head of the Royal College of Canada, uh, which is essentially like he's the head of all of like graduate medical education programs at Canada. Yeah. And Ben asked him this really great question where he just says, hey, we're a couple of junior educators or junior clinician educators. What advice would you give us? And the guy proceeds to go on for 30 minutes telling us his life story. (laughs) And the whole story was just him saying yes to one opportunity after another. And, he, Mm. you know, one thing led him to Harvard and the next thing led him to some coastal university in Newfoundland. And like then he's doing research and like the next thing you know, he's published in Nature. It was phenomenal to hear his story. But the theme was just say yes, like. You say yes over and over, and and then you start to narrow your interests over time as you start to find out what you really love. Number two, I think number two is you do need to start now reflecting as a student. And it's not hard. Just think about like, what do you actually love? 
And it might be clinical medicine. It might be you love procedures. Maybe you love surveys. Maybe you love, uh, you know, qualitative research. I don't know. Like chances are you have some passion somewhere. Anything that tends to just fascinate you that you find yourself wanting to read more about, there's probably an interest that lies within that in education. Don't ignore that and just find the people that actually do that work and meet with them, right? And read more about it and reflect on the things that bring you the most joy, the learners that bring you the most joy and the things that you want to see changed in, in education. That's interesting. I, I just interrupt really quick and let you get yeah. back to these five points, but I, you mentioned finding your interest in whatever that might be. And you said survey. I recently listened to a podcast where someone's actually just talking about why they're so interested in how surveys are conducted and how they're worded and how do you uh, get an unbiased response? How do you, it, so it's true. It's wow. true. I think, I think there's a lot to unpack in almost anything. Yeah, there totally that. is. Totally. I told you that story about being interested in retrieval practice and the medicine residency starting a testing program. The first role I got after my chief year was to run that testing program. And so my entire job was to learn to write multiple choice questions. And it turns out there are a lot of books written about how to write good multiple wow. choice questions. And it was really fascinating to me. I learned a ton about writing multiple choice questions, what makes a good multiple choice question, what makes a bad multiple choice question. I wrote plenty of those. Uh, I actually led to, I had an opportunity to write some questions for the American Board of Pediatrics. I had a, an opportunity to sit on a panel one time with the American Board of Pediatrics where we were setting the standard score for what passing the boards would mean or what it wouldn't mean. So, so it, it opened to other doors. That's my point. You know, if you ask me right now, do I love writing multiple choice questions? Do I want to do that? Like, no, that's not going to be my uh, long-term career path. Right. But, but at a moment, uh, I took the opportunity that was in front of me and, and it opened other doors and I learned a ton about assessment in that moment. Okay. Back to the thing, five tips. So number three, the third tip is I think you need to read broadly. Okay. And, and what I mean by that is like, don't just read like uh, in medicine around clinical content, like you also need to read outside of medicine. There's a lot of literature in business and self-help and psychology that really is pulled into the medical education field a ton. And you'll hear this often. And when you hear these things, go read about them. The common example that probably most people have heard of by now is growth mindset. I had never heard of growth mindset prior to 2015. There was a Grand Brown speaker we were sitting there, Eric Warm, Ben Kinnear, myself, a couple other people from the medicine residency. He invited the speaker, David Hirsch, who's a close friend of, of Eric's. And he said, everyone should read the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I remember all three of us were like, well, if he says everyone should read it, I guess we should read it. And the book just changed my life. I mean, absolutely changed the way I think about education and probably my career. And the tangible practical tip that I would give a student is find a medical education journal and read it. Uh, you don't even need to read it, just skim it because it, it'll give you an idea of the kinds of things that are happening in the world of medical education. And if you don't know what to find, uh, subscribe to Academic Medicine or to the Journal of Graduate Medical Education or to Medical Teacher or to Perspectives on Medical Education. There's four options for you. Just pull them up, skim the titles and skim the abstracts. And even just if you did that once a month, you, your eyes will be so open to like what is happening in the world of medical education. Back to, you know, to tip number two, it gives you an idea of what kinds of things excite you, right? If you find yourself 
skipping over every article about writing multiple choice questions, and that's probably not your interest anymore. But if you find yourself really attracted to how we do diversity, equity, and inclusion in the recruitment process, well, then that's probably the thing you're interested in, in medical education. And you could probably carve out a career in that area. Number four, I would say you need to find mentors. There's a role for mentors. There's also a role for coaches. And I think uh, this doesn't have to be old men with white hair. Like this can be young people or peer mentors or a classmate or people like that, that you Mm -hmm. can, can watch you teach, hear you give a lecture, can be right there with you to give you feedback and kind of help you learn and hone your own teaching and, you know, educator skills. And I think uh, when it comes to mentors, I think I'll just say this out loud. So students hear it. We want to be emailed and called by you. Like, I don't think you don't need to be afraid of us. Like people at the at the institution that have roles in medical education, like if somebody runs the simulation center or somebody is over, you know, the head of point of care ultrasound, you know, and you're interested in that, just email that person and ask them if you can sit down for 15 minutes to talk and then just ask them, hey, I think I like point of care ultrasound. How did you get into this? And what advice would you give me? People like telling their story and, and they like helping young junior learners. And what mm-hmm. you'll find is you'll hear really fascinating stories from people. Um, And this can be attendings, residents, fellows, I would say anyone that you admire or is doing something that you think is as an interest of yours, email them and ask them if you can talk to them for 15 or 20 minutes, you'll find out tons. Awesome. Um, and, And then the fifth thing I'll say is just when it comes to advanced training, I think this doesn't have, you don't have to wait till you're done with medical school or with residency. You know, in your fourth year, carve out an elective. I remember when I was a fourth year medical student, I thought I was going to be a rural doctor, right? So I was really fascinated in the concept of cognitive behavioral therapy. So I just created an elective uh, with a psychologist that I could sit down every day and learn about cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, that's what I mean. Like you can get advanced training or extra training wherever your interests are, but you have to know what your interests are before you can do that. Right. So if you know your interest in education or, you know, you're interested in survey design or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, find where there might be opportunities for that. There are all kinds of workshops and webinars and things like that, where you can get an opportunity to, to learn those. That's awesome. I think like the main things I take away from that is just keep your mind open to different possibilities. Don't say no to an opportunity because you don't see any merit in it. Cause you're right. Like a lot of these things are serendipitous. You never That's know right. when you're going to find the spark that leads you down the career path that you never would have found otherwise. So I think it's also, it's important to, while you say yes to many things, like don't stretch yourself too thin and, you know, c- take care of your mental health along with it too. But I think that being open and trying new things is so important. And thank you for your mentioning all those uh, articles too. I'll make sure that I include those in our show notes so that the listeners to this can, can check those out. Cool. Yeah. And I think your point is good, Mason. And thanks for saying that. I do think saying yes to everything should come with a, a sense of balance. You still want to do a good job, right? Like if, you, mm. if you're involved in too many projects to where you're dropping the ball on things, that's not good. Like that, that's probably the worst thing you can imagine. So by saying yes, I don't mean say yes to 50 different things. What I mean is when things happen and opportunities come, just be open and say yes to them. But that does not mean you have to have multiple or 15 of them. Just take, take the opportunities that are given to you. And then you kind of touched on... So I'm a fourth year medical student applying to my residency right now. 
and I'm interested in medical education. What should I be looking for in a residency program that would help me in, in that journey? Do you have any advice for medical students in that position, in my position here? Probably just keep it simple. I think, you know, a lot of residencies, and I can only speak to medicine and peds, they'll be very well equipped to tell you what their uh, opportunities are, right? They, they often have a pathway or they'll have an elective where you can learn to become a teacher, these kinds of things. And those are great. Uh, but I would think, like, look behind that, right? Like, how much theory is really informing that? Are they really talking the talk and walking the walk, right? Or can they describe to you the theory that goes into why they do it that way? Can they define mm. and describe to you how they're doing it and how they've ordered their curriculum and and why they do what they do? If they can do that, then they probably get education, right? At a level deeper than just like, we want to help you become a teacher. And then second, look at the people around, like look at the faculty, look at the residents. How many of them are interested in education? How many of them have advanced degrees or educational roles within the med school or within the institution? You know, I think that gives you a good sense for how serious that residency program really takes education. Awesome. And then I, um, in preparing for this episode, I, I saw that you, you got your master's in medical education after your residency. Is that something that is traditional or is there any kind of tradition to that? It, yes. I, I don't think, I don't know of anyone that's gotten their master's while in residency training. It, it is a uh, residency training is an animal in and of itself. Right. And I think if we go back to that definition of a clinician educator, you want to be a good clinician educator. Primary objective. Number one is be a good clinician. So I think in residency, your, your goal is to become a great clinician. Uh, but after training, there are many opportunities for advanced training, and that can come in the form of masters. Um, ben Kinnear, who I've referenced already, he's getting his PhD in medical education right now. Dan Schumacher, oh, wow. who's one of my mentors at Children's, he has his PhD in medical education, right? These are like leaders in the world of medical education. So you can get advanced training, masters, PhDs. Beyond that, there's all kinds of different things like uh, you know, Macy's runs like faculty development and junior educator things where they can kind of help you learn to become an educator. There are workshops and tracks, and there are many, many different options where you can get advanced training. Now, in that study that I referenced a long time ago about the defining a clinician educator, they actually asked the question, do you need advanced training to become a clinician educator? And I don't know what, what you would guess the answer would be, but the answer is no. People were neutral on it. I think there are some people that are kind of bullish and they, they do think you need an advanced training, like a master's or something. I agree with the, the authors. I do not think you need an advanced degree to be a good clinician educator. I do think you need advanced training. I don't think you can be a good clinician educator on intuition or gut alone. Like you have to get training outside of just yourself or just your own gut, right? Like you have to be attending seminars and workshops and webinars and reading textbooks and faculty development courses. Like if you want to be a good clinician educator, there's only so far that you can go with your own kind of gut, right? Like you need to be getting advanced training. I think that's such a helpful and useful and important distinction to make between advanced training and like an advanced degree. That's right. Because you're right. Like it's, it's, you have to practice, right? Just like with clinical medicine, you have to practice that. If you want to practice medical education, you'd be a good educator. You got to practice it. That's right. Wow. That's right. 
Well, Dr. Kelleher, um, this has been such an interesting and unique opportunity to talk about this with you. And honestly, I find myself even, even more inspired uh, right now in, in terms of medical education. Before we close up here, do you have any other words to share for our listeners? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, let me say it this way. Let's have a balancing measure. Like there are some challenges, right? And in the world of becoming a, a medical educator or a clinician educator, there are, there are some challenges. It can be hard to balance many things. I'm actively involved in multiple things, right? And when I go on service, it's really tough to keep those things juggling, to keep all those plates spinning. Like it gets complicated sometimes. And sometimes I'm answering emails late at night and early in the morning. And, you know, there was a study that, that looked at clinician educators and the time they spent. And they found that about 40% of the educational scholarship they do is outside of the business day. It's like outside of the, the typical kind of work hours. Wow. So it's not all like easy. Let's put it that way. It can be hard to balance all those things. Uh, number two, it's a little bit nebulous what advancing in academics looks like when you're a medical educator. The traditional metrics for kind of becoming a medical educator and, and advancing is typically around publications. And that doesn't always fit well with becoming a medical educator, right? Like how do I define the impact that I'm making on others? Mm-hmm. It's always in publications. And unfortunately, in academics, that's not always recognized, if that makes sense. And then third, I'll, I will say, like, sometimes you can forget in the moment, the journey is part of it, I guess, like, sometimes it, it gets so busy as a medical educator, where the pathway is not always defined. And there's always more emails to answer and more learners to meet with and more things to design more things to write, you have to remind yourself to slow down, I guess, and, and to enjoy every moment. I think that is a hard lesson for a clinician educators, because it is difficult. You often are balancing and being pulled in many different directions. And you want to remember that like, it's fun in the moment. You want to remember to actually savor every single moment of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like what you said about the journey and kind of enjoying the, the journey along education and finding joy, I think, in that day to day. Like you were mentioning earlier, the distinction between being in the clinic and then doing all that work and kind of enjoying what you're doing with patients and the interesting cases that you're seeing, but then how that can kind of be a little overwhelming sometimes. And then having kind of that retreat when you're focusing more on the medical education end of things, and you're kind of seeing that as a break, as opposed to stretching yourself during those duties, I think would be a really helpful thing to do. And just really valuing what you're doing for the individual learner. Yeah, you know? that's right. One of the the things that Eric Warm says, who's one of my mentors, is you know we start with the patient and we work backwards, right? Everything starts with the patient. When you when you think about patient care, it's easy to always think every single decision, every single thing I do do needs to be ran through the lens of what's best for the patient. And I mm-hmm. think education's no different. Everything needs to be run through the lens of what's best for the learner and what's mm-hmm. best for the patient. And when you do that, there are going to be challenges, but it does make the journey more fulfilling, more gratifying, right? Like the point is not career advancement. I might be wrong on this. Okay. And people will disagree with me when it comes to medical educators, but to me, the point should not be career advancement. The the point is fulfillment. The point is loving every day and feeling like you can make a difference. Right. And that's why I think most of us go into education. It's not to 
to make a name for ourselves in education, it's because we really want to impact learners and we really want to see them impact patients, right? We, we want to actually feel like we are making a difference in the kind of physicians they become. And so just like start with the patient and you work backwards, if that's your motivator for being an educator, you are going to have a fulfilling career because you're going to have your priorities in line. Great. I, I can't think of any better into this episode than that. So, well, thank you very much, Dr. Kelleher. Thanks for joining us today and uh, for just giving us some of your time and imparting this really, really great wisdom. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call it wisdom, but thank you. I enjoy <laughs> talking about it. Sorry for the long monologues, but I, I really do enjoy it. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>